Welcome to the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Of course, there aren't really any normal people, but every person has a spirituality, whether plumbers or politicians, firefighters or farmers, entrepreneurs or entertainers. I'm Matthew Bruff, pastor and author, bringing you tips, guidance, and practical advice for how to live out and keep the life in your relationship with God. You can find show notes, books, and more at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. This is episode 35 of the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. A short intro today, uh, mainly because our household is dealing with some stomach flu this week, so I'm just going to do a quick uh, introduction today. We've got a great interview with Ben McFarland, and uh, this is a really cool conversation that I'm so glad uh, I was able to set up. Ben uh, teaches biochemistry and chemistry in general at the Seattle Pacific University in Seattle, Washington. And so we have a whole conversation about what uh, a gracious dialogue between science and faith looks like. And uh, Ben is connected to an organization called BioLogos. Um, and we talk a little bit about that organization in the interview. So I'll just kind of leave it for that. But that that uh, organization is how I got connected to Ben is just uh, by looking them up and um, seeing that they're interested in kind of figuring out is there a harmony between science and faith and uh, why is it that there's often this perceived conflict between faith and science um, and spirituality. And then we do talk about uh, Ben's own uh, spiritual understanding and, uh, you know, how he lives his life out as a Christian. So it's a very neat uh, topic. And, um, and I hope you enjoy this interview. All right, thanks for listening. Take care. Today, I have uh, Ben McFarland on the podcast. Welcome, Ben. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, Ben is uh, teaches biochemistry and chemistry at Seattle Pacific University in Seattle, Washington. And uh, I'm just so excited to have uh, a real life scientist on the podcast to talk <laughs> about spirituality, uh, which might seem a little odd to some some people out there. But um, I got in touch with Ben through an organization called BioLogos. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you want to, maybe you should tell us a little bit about what that organization is rather than me, we bumbling that, um, okay. that'd be helpful. Yeah, sure. Um, BioLogos was actually started by Francis Collins and Francis Collins is a man of science and a man of faith. Really. Uh, he originally did some science with the cystic fibrosis gene. He did a lot of DNA sequencing. Now he's the director of the NIH in the U S and uh, he actually came out with a book a long time ago that talked about his faith journey and how he actually originally didn't believe in God. And then he went through a, a, the process of basically um, believing in God, you know, and he, he talked about his whole testimony. He talked about how he sees science and faith coming together. And he got so many questions from that book that then he was like, I should set up a website to, set, to answer these questions, you know. And uh, so he set up the website and he set up a foundation to answer those questions. Uh, he himself has had to step away because he's now got a big job working with the NIH, you know, managing grants and doing all that. Um, but he's still sort of uh, there in the background. And the thing is, 
BioLogos starts from this position of scientists who are also Christians. And we start with the, the position that you can know about God by looking at the world. You can know about God by reading scripture, by, um, by praying, by listening to the spirit. But how do you put those two together? You know, so one of the taglines for BioLogos is the harmony between science and faith. And I think that they are um, deliberately trying to put out the voice of science scientists who are Christians, who go in the lab and do science, who publish papers, and then also um, who go to church, who pray, and uh, who worship together. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and I kind of just wrote down for myself just to, to remember that a little bit more from uh, the Biologos website says, uh, we aim to help the church develop a worldview that embraces both of these complex but complementary ways of understanding the world and our place now that's talking about faith and science. Um, and there has been a perceived conflict between between these two. Maybe there may be a real conflict, um, but not everyone really sees, obviously people don't necessarily see a harmony between science and faith, but that's something that it sounds like you're committed to, Biologos is committed to trying to help people to see that. But but I kind of want to just know, like, where is that perceived conflict? Um, like, where, why is that there? Or what is the root of that? Where's that coming from? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a very long and complex issue. And some of my friends at Biologos are historians who basically spend all their time thinking about that exact question. Wow. Like, where did it come from historically? And I think the the main point is that it's not a simple answer. There's um, mistakes on all sides when uh, you have people who are perceiving a conflict. And honestly, there's, there is a conflict when it comes to, you know, um, whenever you have a job, in a sense, that can come into conflict with your faith. So kind of uh, how, do you, how do you manage the work that you do and the faith that you believe, you know, um, that impacts your, both of those things impact your whole life. And so bringing that together, in a sense, science is such a, um, a big area, and we have so much freedom in interpreting both science and scripture that uh, we end up sometimes misinterpreting one or the other and uh, thinking that there is some kind of inconsistency between them. The other thing is you sort of have materialism or scientism that sort of has taken over as a default in the scientist area. So kind of when you're getting a science degree, you're learning how to do science, but you're also sometimes getting some stuff that goes beyond what the science says. And you're getting some philosophy that sort of says, um, you know, God isn't really closely involved with this process. God is really far off, you know, and things like that. And I think, so I think that there's some, some problems on the science side too, that science sort of creates a conflict when we, um, when we focus on science too much. And when we sort of say, uh, this is what science says and God's not here at all because I have a scientific explanation. So I think that the conflict comes in many different ways. Historically, that's worked itself out to where, you know, at least in America, we're kind of, um, we're kind of in a politicized environment where we have a lot of uh, people that think that if you believe in God, you have to believe in all these other things as well. And some of those things are um, certain ways of interpreting certain parts of scripture. Uh, and yet, historically, you look over the, the historic church and there's been lots of people 
uh, interpreting that same scripture lots of ways. So uh, one of the things I've found out as I've gone up, as I've grown up, I actually grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and I went to uh, Young Earth Creationist seminars on the weekends, you know, and I thought, this is interesting, this is science, you know, this is how this person puts it together, right? Wow. And uh, then as I got my own education and I, uh, you know, worked my way up through a PhD, I gradually went through different phases where I was like, you know, that's not the only way to read Genesis. And there's lots of people who have read Genesis in another way and who've even been scientists, you know, for hundreds of years. And so um, getting those stories out is an important part of Biologos. So there's a lot of history going on and there's a complex conflict between the two. But I do think that there is um, a lot of unnecessary conflict and unnecessary statements that set them, seem to set them at each other's throats, uh, science and faith in conflict when they really aren't in conflict. Right. Yeah, I, there's, there, there's a ton in your answer. There's a lot of my question too. But um, I, something that just jumped out at me as well, just, you know, the idea of people who are scientists in science interpreting not everybody would necessarily use the word interpret when it comes to science we might use that word with the bible with faith and say well that's up to individual interpretation but science is hard facts and so there isn't interpretation there to be made but i i heard you saying something different than that that there's that there's philosophy and interpretation in science so Absolutely. Uh, I mean, historically, scientists weren't called scientists until like the 19th century. Before that, we were all natural philosophers, right? Right. And so I think at the heart, and we're, you know, PhD has philosophy in it, right? Yeah. You really are a philosopher. And that's why there's a lot of popularizers of science who really are science, they're, they're scientists in the sense, in a philosophical sense. So they sort of take scientism and they say science is the only way to answer these questions. Right. And you really don't have to start there. That's really uh, an interpretation. It's a form of idolatry if I want to get uh, use theological language. Mm. And uh, you don't have to do that. So you don't have to do the young earth creationist Genesis means seven 24-hour days on the one hand. And uh, you have historical examples of people who don't say that um, and are faithful Christians. And you have people who um, you don't have to say that science is all there is. The cosmos is all there is and was and ever will be, as Carl Sagan said. That's, um, that's a philosophical statement, too. And that involves interpretation. The thing that occurs to me is the metaphor that was used historically is the two books metaphor, where you talk about you open up scripture and you read it and you interpret it. You open up nature like a book and you also read it and interpret it. And both of those are telling you truth about God if you interpret it faithfully. Mm. And so there is an interpretation step definitely to the book of nature, which is science. And that image really resonates with me even more today than it did when it was first developed. It was first developed, it goes back to like a couple centuries, Francis Bacon and uh, like, uh, I think Isaac Newton says some things to that effect. Darwin even said some things to the effect of two books Mm. and understanding the book of God and the book of nature. Um, but the, the whole thing about that is that recently the book of nature, when we've opened it up, we found DNA at the heart of every cell and DNA is a line of characters, really. 
And so it's like a language that we can read. And that's even the title of Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, because he read DNA. And he said that it's a kind of language that's speaking, like, um, you know, Psalm 19, uh, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. And you have the idea of nature speaking. When you get to DNA, and this is why I think it's really cool to be a biochemist. And I look at DNA, I actually see a language there. But like any language, there's a step of interpretation and translation. So there's that step for scripture, and there's also that step for looking at DNA. Yeah, that's really neat. I love that. Um, now, what do you do with, uh, like, how, how can we help people embrace science and faith? Or another way of asking that question is maybe how do we speak to those who reject one or the other? Like, we're kind of talking about both sides of this at the same time. But, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you speak to, to those who reject one or the other? Or how do you help that, that the, the people who are struggling with that? Or, or people who just don't, you know, people maybe, uh, like, I know people who have no problem putting these together, but maybe haven't thought it all through. And then they get challenged by someone on one side or the other. Um, Usually on Twitter. How do you you speak to that? Usually on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. um, Well, it is a struggle. And it seems like there's some people who are, who enjoy, you know, going out and poking people on these particular issues. What I like to do is I have my own experience as a scientist and In that experience, I've actually seen ways that God has created. And I'm a chemist, really. Biochemist has nine letters that say chemistry and three letters that say bio. So I'm really (laughs) primarily a chemist at heart. But when I look at the DNA and when I see those things, um, I see that there's really, it's really pretty amazing to me, the chemistry that is behind life. And the more I look at it, the more I'm amazed by it. So one of the things I did is for to one group of people, to the people who sort of think that science is, uh, that interpreting science as all there is is the only option, you know. So to the scientists, I actually wrote a, I wrote a book about this story that was aimed at them and sort of uh, talking about the order in creation and the way that uh, even evolution appears to have been sort of tamed or constrained by chemical possibilities. And there's an amazing order there. And of course, I'm a chemist, so I see the periodic table. And I think that's really cool. I see how the periodic table worked in evolution. And I think that that goes against some of the statements that people say that are philosophical statements that are like, um, oh, it's we science says that there's a meaningless universe. Science says that we're making our own purpose out of nothing, you know, and things like that. And I'm like, no, there's actually some order to the universe, and it, it makes sense at some levels, and I, I want to talk about that. So on the one hand, that's to the scientists. On the other hand, there's um, I was just talking to my youth group the other day at, the, at my church, you know, and those kids are, um, are coming from the other direction. They've been brought up in the church, and they're like, what does science have to say to me is isn't there a conflict? Don't I have all these scientists saying that we have a meaningless random universe, you know? And so to those people, I, I like to talk about maybe what I've seen in lab, but the stories historically of the scientists who were deeply involved in finding out certain things, who were also Christians, you know, from Isaac Newton all the way up. Um, there were some scientists contemporary with Charles Darwin who um, were very eager to find out about how God used evolution to create 
And they had um, no problem. Asa Gray is one of them, a committed Christian and also a, a strong teacher of evolution. And he put that together. He was Charles Darwin's friend, and they corresponded about God even sometimes. And then when you move up to like the Big Bang Theory, big, the Big Bang was originally developed by a Catholic priest. And when you tell that, I told that to the youth group, and they were sort of blown away. They were like, how could this Big Bang Theory, I've been told that this is in conflict with the Bible, but it's a priest who actually came up with the first idea. It's a little more complicated than that, but he was definitely involved, and we definitely don't hear about him to the extent that he was involved. So there's a lot of um, Christians who have worked in science from the beginning to this day, and a lot of those Christians can be found on the Biologos website. So, you know, for the different audiences, for the different sides, you speak one way, all things to all men, right? You speak one way to the scientist to say that science is not all there is, and you speak another way to the youth group kids um, who's to say, you know, God was working through science and he let us see some of the ways in which he worked. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. So then what does that mean for, say, our interpretation of, of Genesis, like kind of getting back to that? Because I think maybe that's the next question for the person of faith to say, well, can't someone just then poke a whole bunch of holes in what the Bible says? And then and then they're stuck with like, how do I, how do I explain that? Like, and I, and I know I'm asking now a scientist more of a biblical, <laughs> that yeah, more sure. of what, more of what I'm supposed to do as a pastor, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but, but we'll see what you think. I just say, talk yeah. to you. you know? yeah. <laughs> but um, no, it's, it's something, and you know, it's a question at the heart of all these experiences I talked about growing up, growing up in the church. Uh, and hearing all sorts of voices interpreting science in all sorts of ways, usually in conflict. It seemed that the loudest voices uh, were the ones that were saying that there's a conflict between the two. And then I found that there were these quieter voices who were saying, you know, I think it goes together like this. And so um, the, the story of Genesis, I've actually gone through several phases myself in my own theological interpretation of Genesis. What I come down to is I can't read ancient Hebrew. And uh, even if I could, I don't live in the time when the the ancient Hebrew was first written down. So one way or the other, I'm having to do some kind of translation on the text. And what I think is really helpful, what I've come to at this point, is I want to talk to the people who translate it, the people who have learned the ancient Hebrew and have learned the context. And one of those people is John Walton, who's also affiliated with Biologus, one of the cool things about um, being part of Biologos is I've actually been able to sit down and talk to John Walton, but you can also read his books and listen to his talks and things like that. And this is a guy who's a scholar in the ancient Near East. Um, he can talk about what the Genesis 1 is saying in its context, what the original Hebrew words mean, and how Genesis 1 was originally a story that wasn't just about the making of the physical universe but it was God establishing a home for himself. It was about um, God giving and choosing the uh, nation of Israel to be a light to the world. You know, and so this theological purpose runs behind all of the Bible and up to and including Genesis 1. So when that happens, I, um, I say, okay, then is it possible that those original writers didn't see it as a 24-hour day? Or is it possible that that just didn't matter to them? 
And once that once I made that step, that the twenty four hours um, wasn't the point of the of that exact of the word day. Okay, I uh, then said, okay, what does it really mean? And it means that God established some sort of order to the universe, that the universe was built up, and that the, at the end of it, you know, God rested on the seventh day. What does that mean? You know, uh, the whole concept of Sabbath and the whole idea that you have. Um, God putting nature in order and giving us a purpose in that order in Genesis 2 um, and us messing it up in Genesis 3, you know, exactly what each of those means is still a point of debate. But I know that it means that God has put nature in order and he's given us a job to do in that and we've messed it up. And uh, um, moving on from that, at a certain point, I've always found myself thinking too much about the wrong things, thinking too much about, okay, what exactly does this word mean? What exactly does the sequence of days mean and things like that? And sometimes I feel like, you know, I I get myself wrapped up into my own loops where I'm focusing too much on the wrong questions, on the question of what does it mean that God did in making the world rather than what does it mean that God's saying to me right now? And so when I reach that point, it, it, I've tried to identify when I reach that point, when the argument gets to be too scholastic, you know, too nitpicking on the details and um, sort of missing the whole point of God's called us to uh, serve as his image bearers in this world that God made. And he did it through the story, the messy and historically, um, historically complex story of Israel being called, and then exile, and then Jesus. So when, to, when I lose sight of that whole theological narrative, and when I'm going down to, um, you know, what does this one word in Genesis 1 mean? I mean, that has great value in itself. But I think that I found myself focusing on the wrong things. And I think it's important to um, remember, this is God speaking to us. What is God saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I find, too, that there's... Uh, something that has been useful for people to to grasp onto is to say, well, the Bible, I have to believe that the Bible meant something to the people who first read it, the people mm-hmm. who first were telling those stories. So it would have been really impossible for them to have written down, if, if the Big Bang is what happened, it would be really impossible for them to have written that down. Um, mm-hmm. So unless God is just dictating word for word. And then basically what God dictates word for word to them becomes meaningless to the people for several thousand years before we figure that stuff out with science. Um, so it needed to mean something in that yeah. time. So we have to go back to that and, and, and talk about, well, what did that mean then? And what was trying to be conveyed? And I don't think anybody when it was first written down was, was trying was, was walking around saying, well, we all know that, that God created the world in seven days and that that's the point of that story. I think you're right on about that, is that it's really about that ordering of creation. And in some ways, it's about our ordering of our lives and the rhythm of our lives, right? That the Bible continues to go back to this idea of God resting on the seventh day and that being a primary way of ordering human life. And the reason given is that God rested, so we ought to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uses the creation story in a very different way than what... Uh, people who want to debate around 
evolution versus creation are using that story in a completely different way than the Bible itself uses that story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think some yeah. of that is helpful. Um, the other thing too, that blew me away is that um, when I, I didn't learn really think about this until seminary, but it gets pointed out to you that there are multiple creation stories in the Bible. Um, people want to just go to, to Genesis one, but even John one, um, which is another famous text that people know and have memorized in the beginning was mm-hmm. the word and the word was with God. And we have no problem making interpretive leaps as to what is going on in that, in that way of telling the beginning of the world's story. Um, the word is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's a metaphor, everyone. Like that's, right. Right. <laughs> we, you have to interpret that. Um, and so I think pointing out that there's, a, there's other ways that the beginning of the world is told, even in scripture, Right. Um, and than Job. just what Genesis one has. Yeah, one of my favorites is Job. When I was, uh, I spent a long time focusing on Genesis one to three. What does it mean? You know, and uh, that was actually all good stuff. That mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. you know that that guides my life and my thinking. Uh, but then I opened up Job, and I I used to think of it when I first read it. I was like, this is just a long, florid poem, and uh, it's it's so bad for Job. You know, he had such a rough time with it and things like that. And uh, but then I looked at the the way it describes creation, and the way it describes creation as sort of dangerous and um, amazing and beyond our control, like the whole image of Leviathan and God speaking from the whirlwind. And they even have some stuff about mining, and mining is chemistry, you know. So <laughs> I per- perked up at that. I'm like, this is chemistry right here. Right. This is talking about how God made the ke- the chemistry deep in the rocks, and that was really important for me when I was actually realized that I was like. You know, this is actually, there's more words in Job about creation. Why am I focusing on the first three chapters? Because it's just the first three, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, I think you've, uh, I think you've talked a lot about this, but maybe I'll ask again if there, like, what else can biochemistry teach us about God? Like, this sounds to be the thing that, that you get excited about. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in a sense, it motivated that, that book that I mentioned, and I, I wanted to talk about say what biochemistry teaches us about God without using the word God, because I was writing to people who you say the word God and they immediately think that you're, um, that you're some kind of person who can't speak to them anymore. That's the way scientists are when you start to talk about God. That's the way that our language has become. What's the title uh, of the book, by the way? Just the, the... It's called A World from Dust, How the Periodic Table Shaped Life. Cool. And so, yeah, it's, it's actually written, that book is written with a lot of implicit theology, and a lot of it comes about to the fact that I look at the world and I see a wonderful ordered creation. I also see a messy, messed up creation at certain levels, you know, and uh, reconciling those two things um, is part of the process of writing and thinking and talking, you know, part of the reason why we're here to discuss these things and to figure some of these things out and to say that some of these things, you know, God's got it figured out. So um, I just think that the impact of chemistry you know, chemistry, you have the periodic table, and there's probably something in my office right here on the wall that has the periodic table on it. You know, all the chemists love the periodic table. But why do we love it so much? Because it takes all of creation, including us, including ourselves and our own brains, and says that all the creation is made of a, out of 92 elements, and those elements have an order to them. And... Uh, that order is even mathematical when you get down to it. That's chapter three in my book. But uh, you, you can see all this order 
that came that comes about in this messy, glorious creation. You know, so many things we can't understand, but God has let us under, understand so much. So the order behind creation and um, the order that leads to the periodic table and how that leads to some things that are ordered a certain way. And the really cool thing about that, what makes me excited, the periodic table is universal. And so that means if life came about on other planets, and that's one of the big ifs that we can talk about, but I have a feeling that if life came about on other planets, it's ordered in the same way. God ordered it with the same laws and by the same chemistry. And that's what gets me excited. Biochemistry then tells me something about God that this order might be even deeper than we think sitting here on this planet. And that that's really speculative, you know? I mean, obviously, just a question of could there be life on other planets? Um, we're all over the place when it comes to that. And uh, the only thing I'm saying is the order of the periodic table looks like a universal given. And it looks like chemical laws are there behind the universe as well as physical laws. And I'm just really interested in this idea of a God who gives laws, a nature who that obeys laws, and how we are called to, you know, follow Christ's example in the middle of this ordered creation. Okay. And that's why I think biochemistry says specifically, it lets me see how that order, the periodic table, um, may have ordered some of the messy biology that we see. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll focus on the on the chemistry side of it for the yeah, for, yeah. for the ordering, right? Yeah, um, I, I I really like that. I think that's really fascinating um, to kind of hear your perspective uh, on that. And I think people will. Um, there's a lot of people who probably haven't heard um, people who have a PhD in what is your PhD? Is it chemistry, basically? That's, that's a, a simple answer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's technically, depending on who I'm talking to, again, audiences, right? Sure. But depending on who I'm talking to, uh, I actually went through an interdisciplinary program that was called Biomolecular Structure and Design, which was such a great name, but I was in the Department of Chemistry. So, you know, if I want to use a lot of syllables, I can use a lot of syllables, but they even changed the name since I went through the program. And so... Yeah, let's say chemistry. <laughs> There's probably not a lot of ton of, a ton of listeners who are listening to somebody who has a, a PhD in uh, in biochemistry, chemistry. However, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, talk about the talk about faith and talk about how they see God in that in that way that the universe is structured and ordered, um, and that that's another like I like that that image of the two books. I think is is fantastic as well. Um, and I think lots of people wouldn't necessarily connect that always to science, but they might connect that to nature like people will say oh i go out into nature and i experience god or i or i can see the beauty of of creation and that's telling me something about god but i think looking at the inside of that and the structure and the order of that and realizing that's telling us about god as well mm-hmm. um that that's another way of looking at nature essentially um, yes. is is the 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 fine observation and I mean, I think that's kind of what science is is doing is is really doing a very very close observation and inspection of of what God has created. Um, so that's I think that's great for you to be I able agree. to tell us that. Um, I also want to ask you because I ask most of my guests, how do you personally understand the spiritual life, or what does your spiritual life look like? Like, what do you do? Well, I'm a big reader. 
And yeah. so a lot of times, and I love uh, hearing the different voices from history, when you are reading someone from a different time and place, and yet you can hear the life in their words, you know, you can hear uh, God speaking to you through that. Uh, and of course, God does that through scripture, and then he does that through other people uh, interpreting scripture that you can read later. So I I love books, and when I... Um, one of uh, my favorite points in my spiritual life was when I realized that J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian. I didn't know that at all, but he was a very deep Christian. He actually yeah. led C.S. Lewis to faith, right? Yeah. And uh, but he also uh, he was a Catholic, and he didn't like do allegory. He didn't put it directly into his writing, but instead he had a very deep theology of what does it mean to create in this world. And so he created Middle Earth, you know, mm-hmm. and to find out that this author that I loved, and I always just sort of assumed uh, Tolkien, you know, you have this default assumption that people are not Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and to find out that, oh, all along, here's this guy who was a, a Christian. How did he work that out? You know, how did he relate to C.S. Lewis? Um, you know, and how did he relate to other people? And they had all their friends, you know, I just love reading about that at that level. So um, I like reading the the Catholic voices. And actually recently, um, <clears throat> excuse me, recently I've been uh, reading some Pentecostal voices. One of them is a Biologos scholar named Amos Young, who wrote a book called The Spirit of Creation. Because again, growing up, uh, in the church, we talked about God the Father all the time, and we talked about Jesus all the time. We rarely talked about the Spirit. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, shouldn't that be a little more balanced? Shouldn't it be like, you know, uh, one-third of the time we talk about the Spirit at least, you know? Uh, not to be legalistic about it or anything, but I was just feeling a need to hear some of those voices. And it turns out that one of my friends here at SPU is actually a prominent Pentecostal uh, theologian who writes about creation all the time. And then I met Amos, and I read his book. And so I've been doing a lot of reading, and sort of recently I've been uh, reading a lot from these Pentecostal voices and the Catholic voices, and I just sort of realized, well, if you take a Pentecostal voice and you take a Catholic voice and you average them out, then you end up sort of with me, you know? (laughs) So um, through that, that's shaped the different ways that they pray, the different ways that they see that God is present and One of the things that, um, as a scientist, when I go into the lab, you know, um, sometimes I end up looking at the world as being just science too much. I look at it as being like an applied laboratory. And I have to recover the idea that God is very near, that it's important to pray and to sing. And uh, one of the, the ways that I always remind myself of that is by uh, going to worship, by going to the church service every week, and just having that as sort of this is the this is the discipline that um, that I follow. This is the the order that I follow. Uh, the seventh day, uh, we go to service and we assemble together and we talk and we sing and things like that. And so, um, having that order in your life, you know having the Sabbath and the Sabbath is involved with resting and also with, um, with resting in God, really, uh, with, uh, going, uh, you know, doing the church things and, um, 
following, uh, being a part of your community. That's that's the way I want to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but hearing God in those voices, it, I do find myself all the time sort of falling off and forgetting how important it is to pray, forgetting how important it is to read and to sing. Um, and then I always find God bringing me back. You know, one of the ways that God brings me back is if I have a set routine where every day I'm thinking about this at this time, I'm doing this at this time, I read my Bible before I go to sleep, you know, things like that. Uh, that's one of the ways in which God has reminded me and sort of brought me back to out of my default deism, you know, default, um, oh, it's just me here, you know, and then I, I get all stressed out and tired. And I'm like, why am I stressed out and tired? Well, it's because I haven't uh, given this over to God. And I, I haven't realized how close God is in this situation right here. So that's what the disciplines do for me. They sort of uh, um, bring me back to hearing God's voice. Because uh, uh, God doesn't speak loudly all the time. Uh, sometimes you have to quiet yourself to hear what God's saying. Right. Um, uh, that's, that's just a great answer. Um, <laughs> there, and there's so much there. I love that as well that you kind of talked about Tolkien and, um, and C.S. Lewis, cause those are kind of my, my heroes, uh, as well. So mine too. Um, yeah. Are you yeah, more of a Tolkien guy or are you more of a Lewis guy? If you had to choose? I, I'm more of a Tolkien guy for sure. Like my favorite books of all time are the Lord of the Rings. Um, and, uh, uh, but I, I love C.S. Lewis too. Yeah, um, you don't have to choose. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, Lewis was really like my mom read, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my sisters and I, when I was really young. So that was kind of my first introduction to that kind of writing, um, or that kind of story. Um, and then I sort of discovered Tolkien as a teenager and then, and then loved, loved that. Um, but uh, people who listen to this regularly know I've written a couple of fantasy books myself. So, oh, really? That's, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, and that's part of where that came from. And, and, uh, and so they're maybe kind of in a, in an in-between between the two things. Um, but I really, uh, enjoy the, uh, the idea of not really, uh, having allegory. I know C.S. Lewis is, is way more allegory, um, mm-hmm. than, uh, than Tolkien, but I kind of like that, that style of, of these images teaching us. So I'm sure like people who've read Tolkien and don't realize he's Christian. And then if they learn that later, or if they're a person of faith themselves later and then go back and read, suddenly there's all kinds of stuff that pops out in Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, But yeah, we could, I have to do a whole other podcast episode about that. Tolkien Um, nerds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I just wanted to uh, kind of reiterate about uh, your book as well. And there's a, there's a website too, which is also called uh, a world from dust. Right. Um, And that's just, um, that's just your name, I think, to get to the website. Is it benmcfarland.com? That's it. Yeah. Excellent. So I would, I definitely uh, refer some of the the listeners to there if they've heard uh, anything and they want to know more about you. And there's some other links to your writing there. I was just on there this morning. Um, okay. so people can go in and read that. Um, but I did want to just ask you about the, the title to a world from dust, because mm-hmm. I think that's a really neat title. Like, I think that's a great title for the book. Um, and, uh, it kind of makes you think like, because it kind of bridges to those two worlds really, really well, I think. Um, right. Like that's sort of a scientific kind of way of talking about like the origins of the universe. Is it from dust? But it's a, like, that's a, that's something that's right from scripture. 
um, at least human beings being created out of the dust yes. of the earth, right? Um, yeah. So I don't know, like, what, what are your thoughts on the title uh, itself? Because it sounds intriguing to me. Yeah, and one of the things I didn't know before I wrote a book is how much the title changes. You yeah. know, you think about <laughs> the title a ton, and then you think you've got a good one, and then you think you get a better one. So my first title was The Quickening. And then my second title was River of Life. And then my third title, and we took that to the publishers, and the publishers said, we like this book. We went to publish it. You've got to change the title. And so I came up with the whole list, and I gave it to my publisher. And my publisher said, how about this, A World from Dust? And I thought that was interesting because, to me, that was one of the most theologically charged of the titles mm-hmm. uh, because of the resonance of the word dust. Yeah. Um, so, and the idea that, it's even sort of literally true if you think about dust as small particles, right? And yeah. there's a pretty good metaphor for atoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even shows up like when I uh, saw my cover for the first time, I, I saw a lot of things in it and I liked it. And uh, one of my uh, one of the illustrators who worked with me on the book, uh, she pointed out they actually are showing dust on the cover because they have all this little spray of like little particles, like it's coming together into the different things on the cover. And I was like, yeah, that's really, uh, that, that works on multiple levels. So it's, uh, I've had a couple of reviewers who have gone through and who have said, I can't tell what kind of book a world from dust is from those four words. And I'm kind of like, you know, that's okay, because I don't mean for it to be the kind of book that you can it's not meant to be a popcorn book where you dip in and you dip out. Actually, the whole point of the book is that it's supposed to be a narrative. And uh, there are some reviewers who are remarking, usually science books, I like dip in and I dip out, you know, I skip around. You can't do that with this book because it's a story. And that's really the underlying message of the whole book, that there is a story to creation. It starts here with the Big Bang. It ends here with us in this ordered world that we can make choices and decisions and we can, uh, we have this, this amazing gift of the image of God, but we have lost it somehow. We have defaced it somehow. Um, and so that's where we end up with, and there's all this chemistry and biology along the way that brought us from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And isn't that cool? But it's a whole story. And so you can't really dip in and out of it. And, uh, and when I see that showing up in a review, I'm like, okay, that's the point I actually wanted to make. Because I want to make the point that, you know, it's a big, huge, incomprehensibly complex story, but we can understand parts of it with chemistry. And uh, I think that's because we have, uh, the story has a storyteller. Right. But um, that's where that's where the book comes from. And so it's meant to be sort of uncharacterizable and definitely uh, a little bit theological but you have to be familiar with the theology to hear the theology in it right well and also uh i would say that you know probably almost anything that's written like actually has some kind of theological bias even if the writer doesn't know that wouldn't frame it that they have a theological bias yeah Um, if they're saying i don't have a theological bias well that's the theological bias right there right right and like every every piece of writing anything we say is going to have a philosophical or theological underpinning to it um and so knowing that you are who you are and you've written that book and i i read a couple of reviews just some of those quick ones on amazon i think and uh um and it's 
the reviewers were saying this is really accessible. Like this is this is for regular people to be able to read and understand. And there's also some humor in it. And um, so that was that was good. Like I, I don't want our listeners to hear, oh, here's this yeah. science book. Why yeah. would I go read a science textbook? And but I hear what you're saying is this is a it's a it's kind of a it's a story, yeah. but there's all it, it's it's interesting and it's fun to read too. Like I want people to hear that. Um, and yeah. maybe there's someone who wants to read about that kind of stuff who who's listening today and and will go check it out. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a mixture, you know. As a chemist, you know, I go together and I mix things together and I see what happens. Hopefully, it doesn't explode, you know. <laughs> that's great. And that's kind of the attitude, you know. I, I kind of uh, took a lot of uh, a, a lot of things and sort of mashed them together, and it ended up being, you know, it's my first book. You know, um, I'm trying to figure out how to write a book, and if you've written a book, you know that it's uh, it's definitely a, yep. a long process, right? You know. Uh, um, with lots of different parts to it, but I, um, I had fun doing it. So I hope that people have fun reading it. Yeah. Sure. That's great. Well, we should probably wrap it up. Um, but thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciated our conversation. Oh, thanks for the chance. Yeah. It's great talking. All right. Take care. Thanks. I hope you found today's episode helpful. Don't forget to check out the show notes at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. There you can sign up to get the free short guide called Six Tips to Get Consistent in Connecting with God. And when you do that, you'll also get the latest updates and news from the blog, plus book announcements and anything else I may be working on. So head over to spiritualityfornormalpeople.com and sign up. Thanks for listening today and take care.